I'm Tannis McDonald. Welcome to Watershed Writers Podcast. In this episode, we ask Inuit author Mike Chalk about his writerly solutions for claiming his mixed race identity. We'll hear Mike read from his book, Night Lunch, in which he crews on a ferry and freight vessel traveling up the Labrador coast. Also on this episode, we ask Sarah Tolmy about literary prize culture. Sarah writes speculative fiction, and she has a surprise revelation about finding support from famous author Ursula K. Le Guin. Sarah reads from her book, Check, about confirmation bias, and speaks about taking up space and daring to be funny. We're glad to have you join us. This podcast series is for readers and for writers, for people interested in how writing works and why it's vital to where and how we live. We record in the Grand River Watershed region, the traditional territories of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. We feature interviews with local novelists, poets, playwrights, and essayists, and offer a showcase for a community of nationally known writers, as well as writers who are just getting started. What are we You can find more about future podcast episodes on our website, watershedwriters.ca, on our Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast channels. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. On Watershed Writers, we are sharing our anticipation, excitement, and curiosity. We are listening local, talking global with you, our audience. In this episode, I talk with Mike Chalk and Sarah Tolney two writers who live and work in the region and whose recent books demonstrate a love for form, a spirit of investigation, and a quest for self-definition. Settle in for a two-book episode on Watershed Writers, where we talk about why form matters and how to write private lives into public books. Mike Chalk lives in Guelph, Ontario, where he co-founded the AND Collective an experimental writer's group. He wants to remind people that writing is an art that can be accessible to everyone. Mike has worked as an AB seaman in Labrador, Sweden, Wales, and has lived in Montreal studying at Concordia University, where he was the associate poetry editor of The Incongruous Quarterly, as well as the editor-in-chief of The Void magazine and now he's returned to Southwestern Ontario. Mike's debut book, Night Lunch, from the wonderful Gordon Hill Press in Guelph, sees him on the crew of a freight and ferry vessel sailing up the coast of Labrador in search of his indigenous heritage. I heard Mike read from Night Lunch last September and was so happy to hear his beautiful writing that I really wanted him to appear on this series. And now he is. I'll talk with Mike about writing, about work, about his crewmates, the search for personal history, and about his new project, How Long Do Birds Live? Hi, Mike Chalk, and welcome to Watershed Writers. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, it's a delight to have you here and to talk about your book of poems, Night Lunch with the beautiful cover with the icebergs on it, the ice flows on it. 
ice flows have been much in the news this week as uh, we had a walrus from Greenland who floated on an ice floe and ended up on off the coast of Ireland looking very lonely. Uh, <laughs> you haven't seen it? Check yeah, it out. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> but we're here uh, not to talk about walruses, but to talk about how night lunch is poems in the tradition of writing poems about work. And the work here is when you were part of a crew of a ferry and freight vessel going up the coast of Labrador. And I'm interested in work poems in general and how we write about what we spend you know, all our days doing, but might seem prosaic or a non-poetic subject to other people. Do you want to uh, start off by telling us a little bit about the job you were doing and how you saw it as a kind of poetic moment that you could write down? Yeah, so I was working as an AB seaman on the MV Northern Ranger, which traveled up and down the north coast of uh, Labrador in Inatsiavut. It was, it was a passenger and freight vessel. It serviced the isolated communities up in like, went from Goose Bay to Riglet, Makovic, Postville, uh, Hopedale, Natanwishish, and Nain, and then down to Cartwright and Black Tickle on the south shore. Yeah, so like I was an AB seaman, which means I did cargo operations, um, I get called out to, you know, be in the, in the cargo hold, you know, strapping up pallets, moving stuff like slugging around giant bags of like bait squid and stuff. And um, also part of that was working in the wheelhouse and steering the ship, which at the beginning of the season actually is pretty interesting because there's, there's a lot of icebergs and ice oh, wow. so you're actually going like in between them, kind of like pylons and in the middle of the night when you're doing like the 12 to 4 a.m. watch you're just kind of looking at the radar and they're just saying, okay, like go a bit to the, to the starboard. And you're just like watching these big icebergs coming by, but nothing too big. If it's too big, you would go all the way around. But there were definitely some times where I'm like, you sure you want me to go through there? But <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> so tell me about how that work seemed to link up for you with these poems that appear in the book. It wasn't my first time working on ships. Like I, I worked the first year I did some ship work. I was over in Sweden and I took a oil tanker from Sweden to Wales and then worked on the dry dock there. Then the second season I worked on the same Northern Ranger ship, but it was the, the first season I did it. These three seasons were all while I was at Concordia University for um, English and creative writing. So I was really like into finding things to, to write about and like just really like in the practice and in the community there. So when I, when I was going to Labrador, there was again for the second time, I already had some poems that I wrote the first time around. I also just was like, this is like a great opportunity for you to like learn more about Labrador, about Nunatsivut, about like my family heritage, about my dad's family over there. And just like really treat it as like a special time and a special place to try and work out some kind of project. A good deal of the book has to do with um, not only looking at Labrador, but looking for particular things uh, in Labrador, for looking for um, a personal and a public history of uh, of the Inuit in, in Labrador. And this, of course, is watershed writers. So we're interviewing people who uh, are right, working uh, as uh, writers uh, in the Grand River watershed region. So this is, uh, in some ways, an unusual topic uh, for us to, to zero in on on this show. And I'd really be interested in knowing more about it because I don't know that much about that part of Canada. I didn't know that much either. Like, my dad is from Goose Bay, Labrador. He spent his late teens and early 20s as a bush pilot going in and out of all these communities that I later would go in and out on a ship, right? He would bring their supplies and go to like hunting and fishing camps and bring supplies to the different communities. I was going there for the first time on a ship as like a, as like an adult and, and working, but 
I had been there a whole bunch of times as a kid. We might we'd take family trips out to Labrador. We'd go ice fishing. We'd go out to the cabin in Mulligan, which is on Lake Melville. Several times a week, we'd be going down Lake Melville toward the Atlantic. I wasn't really primed on the history of place of Labrador and Nazi, but so when I went there, it was a real point of interest for me and I wanted to explore it through talking to people. But yeah, like it is an interesting history that I, I was really excited to to learn more about in any way I could. I think it, it's fascinating that you mention uh, George Cartwright as well. So the uh, the 18th century explorer of, uh, of the region and uh, in some ways uh, someone who lives very strongly in public memory and I've been made over into a Canadian literary figure by John Steffler in his afterlife of um, George Cartwright. But this is a different product than, uh, than that kind of historical fiction that Steffler uh, does. You've written this search for family history, search for, uh, for people and the characterizations of your shipmates in sonnets, in a series of sonnets, and even with a crown of sonnets at the end. I see that the writer John Nyman has suggested that you have captured the kind of tender lurch of the sonnet, which is a phrase I, I love, the tender lurch. I'd love to hear you talk about why you chose the sonnet form, why this way of getting at that material? You know, I didn't really come to it with this sort of like a big plan. I came to it with, you know, I was reading certain books and I was reading like John Berryman's uh, Dream Songs, which is like a, a reworking of the sonnet. And I'd just be coming from like school where I was learning about all the older, more traditional sonnet. Um, I knew I wanted to write a long poem and like a sequential poem. And so I landed on the sonnet sequence, which I just honestly started writing the sonnets and they started coming and it kind of like started to mimic my process, which was like build something as I went. Like if something like hit me right, I'd put it in, I'd find its place and I'd move on and I'd revisit it later. It felt a good way to sort of represent the mechanics and schedule of the job. I could write a sonnet about a hard wake up where someone like pounds my door open and says like, get up, like you got half hour. And then four sonnets later, I can write another poem about another harsh wake up where someone slams my door in and I had to go up to the wheelhouse and I throw up some, some crackers I was eating, right? So it's like, it was a way to sort of create a vehicle that slowly went along. With sonnets, I feel like they're like accessible in a way that other forms aren't. Like they, they're a length that a lot of people don't find discouraging. I've always been sort of fixated on the accessibility of poetry, especially with like the people on the ship and the people I was writing about and people who like exist within these poems, all the characters are based on real people. To include them in a way that I don't alienate them, a way that like I invite them to, to read it. So I feel like sonnets were a good way of doing that. Like they were recognizable in a way. And also maybe more importantly than anything, sonnets traditionally people think of especially formal poetry as something that exists like as, a, as like an exalted form as like separate from the everyday as like people have opinions about who and what can appear in formal poetry in the sonnets and I wanted to sort of break that divide down or like build a bridge between a, a more recognizable formal poetry and working people and working people's language and the way that we talk to each other on the ship and like the pranks people pulled, the meats left in the fridge, you know, just like these like everyday aspects and like objects, the mundane 
um, everyday language and just like a type of just subject matter that people wouldn't expect to find in a sonnet. And I thought that that was a way to like break down some of the boundaries for people who may not be interested or uh, used to reading poetry who might come across it in, in a way that's like unique to its geography. Like not many people write about Labrador. Yeah, I just wanted to be able to write the book for, for everybody who was going to read it. And I thought sonnets were a great way of, of moving forward with that while being true to the nature of the job and the nature of the, the project behind it. Great. And, you know, I think this is the perfect time to hear uh, a little bit about that, that night lunch that the book is named after. And, of course, to, to meet some of uh, your crewmates. Night lunch, I'll just explain that first, too, is um, night lunch is just like a sort of slang phrase for a meal or a snack in the middle of the night. So it's like if you were on the 12 to 4 a.m. shift and you were going down for like, you know, really your your dinner or your lunch or breakfast or whatever you want to call it in the middle of the night at 5 a.m. You call that your night lunch. It's like it's like the midnight snack. And, and on the ship, it has a particular importance because people who get off the shift, it's like the engine room people, the the people from the wheelhouse, they come down and you all have a little snack together and often it's a sandwich. Yeah, this is Sonnet 37. Gather round now, crew, the night lunch cold plate. Turkey, ham, iridescent roast beef splash colors rolled loose, spokes of a perfect circle. Cubed orange cheddar, white moths piles the center, scatter of gherkins form the foothills, oh. Cookies long asleep after the midnight watch change, port to stern deck open, smokers eye the white wake bloom from blackness moon out one rolls one tube and disappears it one shaker close salts each slice of wet ham one tells a story through cheese pasted teeth one crafts with slow care a sandwich white bread forgetting a moment the nitrate pool on the plate and listens together speaks i love those cheese plastered teeth <laughs> Yeah, I, I get a lot of feedback about those. It's kind of gross, but I think it, I think it works. I, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it shows the fellowship between the crewmates, right? And the anticipation of the meal. And I love that the cook is long asleep, right? Mm -hmm. And that they're converging on the, the space and, and having this, this meal together. So I, mm -hmm. I love that, uh, that poem. I'm really, uh, really glad that you read it. So you said that you wanted to make sure that the book was accessible to those who would read it, but it meant that you were anticipating that your crewmates could be an audience for uh, for this book. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What did they think about the fact that they appear warts and all in some ways in uh, this book? I've, I've found that like anyone I've talked to who's, who's been in this book kind of loves it. It's, it's kind of a special thing. I was really true to everybody's personality on it. People like Terry Porter, he was the porter on the ship. He was like the prankster, right? And he'd go around and like, he'd come down for lunch and he would turn people's thermostats up while they're sleeping. Like they get a couple hours of sleep a day, they're sleeping. He goes and turns their thermostats up. And then when they come back out for sleeping onto the deck, like they're just saying like, geez, Terry, like <laughs> I thought I was dying. Like I woke up and I, like just, you know, hot, hot room, small little cabins, right? So like, I, I wanted to be true to people's personalities and who they were and like, what we did together on the ship, like, you know, walking into the bosun's room and he's playing the accordion and drinking like a rock star energy drink, like real people. One of my main concerns and one of my main focuses was to do everything very honestly. I, I just don't think that people have any problem with, with honesty, you know, so. 
Do you want to read number 44 uh, for us and show us a, a bit more of, a, of them? Yeah, sure. So this is number 44. I was there almost crushed today between the bulwark and a pallet of salt fish on for Cartwright. The four cranes swung against the wind to sudden stop nearly ending me there. Back down in the hold, Lester examines a shipped axe. What a lovely axe, he says. And Brian grabs my shoulders, gives them a shake. He says, your time's almost up, old buddy. Won't be thinking about us boys on the boat. He sighs, straps a pallet. This woman I knows, I'd walk a mile on broken glass just to hear her piss in a paint can over a long distance phone call. And no better poem is said. No better light, soft sun on steel bulkhead. I agree. Who who wouldn't like hearing themselves memorialized in such a way? I mean, that's the, I mean, that's a pretty good line to be remembered for, right? <laughs> no poem was better said. Yeah, you know, you got to give credit when someone says something really good. And like the thing about uh, Newfoundlanders and like Labrador, like they just have such a, a like a musical way of speaking and their slang. And like I grew up with it because my dad's from Labrador. And like as soon as he talked to his brother or anyone else from Labrador, his Newfoundlander friends, like he'd slip right into it, right? And so when I was there, I think just like part of the fact that I grew up around it and like hearing it and probably when I was like forming language, like it was early on in my life, it was a long time ago. My dad probably, his accent was probably even stronger. And so as soon as I get on that boat, like I had to catch myself from slipping into it, like as if it was something inside me that I had learned and was like, that was coming out. It was really, it was really interesting the way like my language was cha changing, not just as like a outsider chameleon, but as something that, um, something from somewhere honest that was coming out that I'd actually stop myself because I'd be like, I don't want these people to think I'm just like, you know, coming from away. There's a big Newfoundlander population in, in southwestern Ontario. I, I know it's it's true in, in Kitchener, Waterloo, and, and probably in Guelph as well. And I always thought that was because because Newfoundlanders would come here for um, uh, drawn by by manufacturing and, and factory work. Is that true in your estimation? Or are there other reasons? I'm sure there are other reasons. But Newfoundlanders definitely do leave newfoundland for for work right like you got a lot in uh, yeah around manufacturing around here here's a huge population in cambridge i mean you see the the decals on the trucks everywhere you go the yes. flags on the front lawns there like there is a bit of a lack of 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 work and opportunity on newfoundland just based on like industry wise right like it's like a lot of people go into the fishing um on the fishing boats a lot of people go into ship work which is a funny thing too because like when i was in university in montreal i would say you know, I'm, 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 I just got back from working on a ship out east and people would think it's the most romantic thing in the mm. world. You can go out there and you're like, oh, I'm in university in, in Montreal. They're like, what the hell are you doing out here? Like, it's a different perception, right? Because there it's like, it's not a glamorous thing. But I, so I was like, kind of like straddling two worlds where on one end of it, people thought it was like the coolest, most romantic thing. And on the other, and the other side where people are like, this is something that like people fall into because they, of where they live, it's not necessarily like celebrated, right? Yeah, yeah, indeed. So I want to um, get to a, a few of the poems towards the end of the collection. You talk about you know, when you're in Labrador, that there's a recurring image of a, a polar bear on the nook that both is and is not there throughout. The, and you yeah. have the, the search for that particular image. And can you say something about how, how uh, the Nanook becomes a kind of symbol of the search? Yeah. The search like, is what it is, right? Like it, it definitely is important. Like it, it, it's in the first poem and the last poem and, and poems throughout. I, I included it because like, as you know, talking again about like building something as you go, like writing as you go, like I went there and I was like, I might see it. I might see a polar bear. And when I'm up on watch, when I'm 
out on the deck. Like I'm constantly looking, I got the binoculars out. It was almost like a weird substitute for some kind of validation of place. It was just something that like, I really wanted to be able to, to say, I saw and see a polar bear to be able like, to feel like I connected with something from the, the land in the book, I call it what the white bear hyphenated because Nanook means white bear. I wanted to link that in terms of like my heritage and family history as well. I wanted to create that bridge and call it and white bear. And then, and Lester, a deckhand from Postville, he was telling me about the legend of the, of the bear in the cliff there that, that was um, immortalized by trapped there forever by, by a shaman. And I was like, and it's a kind of just like a smudge in the rock face. And that was near the time I got off. So I'm like, is this, is this me finding it? Right. Like there's a lot of projects in this book that, that are never solved. And that's part mm -hmm. of its point. Like there's a lot of things with my identity and my heritage that, that can never be solved. It's just one of those things. It's one of those things I was searching for that I might've found. I might not have found. It's just, it's a little bit ambiguous. Towards the end of the book, when you have your crown of sonnets, the crown of broken blood is the, the name in the section. And you've got a quotation from Haudenosaunee author uh, Alicia Elliott from her book, A Mind Spread Out on the Ground, about decolonizing the mind, right? And that how there's this project of, of going and searching for, for personal history was about a kind of decolonization of your own mind. And this is what Alicia writes, quote, this is how I can decolonize my mind by refusing the colonial narratives that try to keep me alienated from my own community. So I'd be interested in hearing about how that particular passage guided you uh, in writing this, this final sequence, this crown of broken blood. And I'd like to invite you to read a poem from that sequence too. That quotation actually, it means a lot to that, the final crown really. It, I first heard it when I was on the 401 driving to Toronto to deliver beer for a brewery I was working for. And I was listening to the audiobook. And when she said that passage saying that being, maybe being mixed race doesn't have to mean shaming myself out of my indigeneity just because I wasn't raised in the culture. Like this, it was just something that like I had never really heard before. It's had, it was something that like, even though this was like a long standing project of like mine of just like trying to figure out where I stand within, you know, like indigeneity and having my, like my father is a registered member of the Labrador Inuit community. And it's just like, but where does that leave me as someone who grew up in Guelph and like grew up outside of the culture? Like there's aspects of the culture in my life, but and like going to Labrador and learning uh, certain things and like, you know, riding in a comatic behind the snowmobile and ice fishing and hunting when I was a kid and stuff. It's like, but like, I just grew up so far away, right? And without a sort of real link and so like hearing that, like I, I just had always struggled with it. Like even as a kid, I would like try not to tan because I was, because my skin would get so dark in the summer and I, people would be like, where are you from? Like, like, what are you? Whatever, right? So it's like, I just always had this like sort of conflict of identity. And on the other side of that is the fact that like, I would never want to take space where I, where I don't belong. And so like to sort of claim any kind of indigeneity has always been a problem with me too, because I'm like, I don't belong. Maybe it's not right for me to say it. Maybe that's not my place to say that and to like claim anything like that. So like hearing that passage, like I literally just started crying on the, while driving on the 401. Like I just had never heard anyone put it that way. And to like link it to the fact that someone like me, like anyone who's like mixed, like mixed race, linking it to the fact that like not honoring that or not acknowledging that or not like putting that out in a visible way into the world 
it doesn't serve anybody or anything but the colonial project that has like long tried to tear people away from from their history and their heritage and like 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 cause people for a long time to sort of like land on the white side of their mixed race identity right and to not to not honor their their family lines and their ancestors and so when i heard that like and to put, put it that way where it's like no there's there's a reason for you to be and there's a reason for you to talk about it you know as a poet and to write about it and it's always and it just was like it meant so much to me and it means an incredible amount and I, i'll read i'll read the 13th sonnet from the from the crown here great thank you i wonder how much more i could do for hours a blend of peoples not uncommon to labrador of families unrecorded mixings of learned denials toward whiteness that alongside indigenous pieces are themselves passed down. I remember how brown purple my nan's bare lips were. Where'd they get the caribou for ringalls? I asked mom. The community gives some each season to elders. Poppy didn't hunt no longer and I can no longer learn the skills he had but those passed through my father. We need to plan a trip together there to learn we are even if not full blood. You know, I think that's a really an integral conversation to be having and, and to say, right? And yeah, and what is colonial about, about thinking that you don't deserve to be part of a community, right? It's, yeah. it's huge, it's huge. I really wanna thank you for, for writing that down. Just in the last couple of minutes that we have, uh, I want to turn to, to Guelph itself. But I'm, I'm interested in your literary involvement in, uh, in small city incursions, right? I, I have a, a big interest in how writing is done outside of the larger corridors of power. And uh, you, of course, have published this book with Gordon Hill Press, and you have started a collective of your own ampersand comma one we just called it and but it's the ampersand comma and, and one was the name of our first chat book that we came out with it was a collective that a friend of mine uh, zane Koss, he's a poet who is uh, studying his phd in poetics at uh, nyu right now he was living in guelph when i was also living in guelph for a little while and we just wanted to like build something here because we just didn't really feel that we fit in too much into the community or like, you know, like the community and what it was. It just didn't really have a sort of landing spot for any kind of more experimental stuff. And we were like really interested in collaboration at that time and sort of like non-traditional approaches. And so we created this collective together. John Nyman, who you quoted earlier, he was in it, Ignition there. It was, it was really nice while it lasted, yeah. Cool. And uh, what are you working on now? Uh, right now, I just finished a manuscript called How Long Do Birds Live? I published a few of them in Malahat Review and ARC, and one was picked up. The one that was in Malahat was picked up for Best Canadian Poetry 2018. That one was called The Canada Goose, which is online as well. I had another one in The Puritan, but I, I, I've just sort of finished that manuscript. I've got it in a place where, where I like it. It's got 50-something birds in it. Birds are just kind of like an access point, like a stepping stone to something else like another issue or like another thing that I want to like talk about for example the house wren is about wanting to have a kid while you're young but being young kind of young a little less than young and not wanting to have a kid yet right so it's just like things like that that are kind of like put in like sort of this bird context and then I have another project that I'm starting about Nova Scotia and my mother's family that side of the family as a landing place for poetry too I just want to explore how um, my, my mom's side in like Nova Scotia and that side of my family informs my identity 
and, and history as well. So Great. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're out of time, but I really want to remind, remind people that Night Lunch by Mike Chalk is published by Gordon Hill Press, uh, a proud uh, small press in uh, Guelph, and uh, it is available for you to buy right now. It was terrific to meet you, Mike, and to talk to you uh, about poetry today. Yeah, it was uh, nice meeting you too. And thank you as well as everyone else at the Watershed Writers series. Yeah, I hope to see everybody around maybe out in the, out in the poetry world when, when things are up and running again. For sure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Hi, and welcome back to Watershed Writers the radio documentary series that features writers from the Grand River Watershed region. I'm Tannis McDonald, and I'm joined now by the speculative fiction writer and poet, Sarah Tolmy, to talk about her snappy, snazzy poems in her new book, Check, published by McGill Queens Press in 2021. Now, Check is Sarah's ninth book, and she'll be speaking about taking up space, about daring to be funny, and about what it meant to be nominated for the Griffin Poetry Prize in 2019. Now, full disclosure, I've known Sarah for a number of years, having first heard her read in 2016 at the Balderdash series in Waterloo, where she made me laugh, not just a little, but a lot. Sarah teaches at the University of Waterloo, and she is no stranger to writers who are just starting out. So she talks about her own rough beginnings as a writer, including a story about how her first book caught the eye of venerable science fiction writer, Ursula K. Le Guin. Stay tuned for Sarah's story about the value of generosity in the sometimes turbulent world of literature. Hi, Sarah Tolmy, and welcome to Watershed Writers. Hi, Tannis. It's lovely to be here. It's great to have you here, and it's great to read this new book of yours. Check. Well, I'll just give you the cover there for uh, people watching this on video. Check, which I think is such a, a, a lovely title because it invokes check, please. And also, I'll check this box and let me just check that. It's really a title that works all kinds of ways. Now, I know that this is a book that works with the, uh, the concept of confirmation bias. And can you tell us a little more about that idea and how it powers an entire book? Yes, I can. I, in fact, I was originally going to title this book, Confirmation Bias, and then I realized to my horror very late in production that that title was already taken. Hence, we ended up with check. Although, chiefly because I love the, the cover image, I am now quite reconciled to it being called check, and you've already put your finger on why that title still captures <laughs> it. So I think it's funny, I wrote most of this book before the quarantine, but the quarantine has only reinforced the problem you know, in my mind. And it is that one in which we've all worked so hard, right, to get, uh, you know, to live in a position where there are enough human rights where we can actually choose who our companions are. And we, of course, do this a lot online, right? We, um, we have the right to free association and therefore we, you know, choose to exercise that right. And the problem then becomes that we're always surrounded by people who agree with us. And we're always talking in usually pretty suspicious and pejorative terms about the people who don't agree with, with us. Mm -hmm. And this is just, it's, a, it's an absolutely ubiquitous problem, 
It doesn't matter if you're, the groups to which you belong are political or they have to do with your hobbies or they're you know, kind of big or small in their implications. We're, we all seem to live in these kind of self-reinforcing community bubbles now. And this has, I think, endless repercussions on the way we live our lives. It's true, and I'm really interested in um, the use of the term bubble, because I remember there used to be uh, this thing called the social media bubble, where you mm -hmm. would only speak on social media to people who you knew well or who agreed with you. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, when the pandemic came, it was, we talked about creating, consciously creating, creating bubbles. a bubble. Yes, safety <laughs> bubbles. Yeah. Right? Yes, indeed. And yeah. so you wonder, is there a Venn diagram of these bubbles here in which Mm -hmm. uh, which keeps us in the confirmation bias. And yeah. a quick definition for, uh, for people who want us to define the term, confirmation bias is the tendency to interpret new information as though it always and endlessly confirms what you already know. Yeah. Yeah, Did, yeah. Do, you want to, do you want to add anything to that, nope. that definition? You have yeah. covered it beautifully. <laughs> um, so I'm interested in how, uh, not only in the phenomenon, but and how it powers the poems themselves. You said yeah. it's it's an endless subject, but in how how so are you getting at it poetically? Yeah. Um, well, this book I kind of wrote quite seamlessly. It, it practically grew out of the previous book, The Art of Dying, which was another completely thematic book. You know, it was about here are our practices and here are some satirical remarks upon uh, you know, the the kind of theater of dying as we do it now. And it was kind of built around the idea of um, the old medieval Ars Moriendi, because I was trained originally as a medievalist. So I tend to think in these very antique terms. And this book came along right after it in a way. So I'd already got the idea in my head that it was okay to write a book about a topic. And uh, you know to kind of really think of it as a sort of a, a long series of steps you know, it's kind of a statement and then a little counter proposition and then a little refinement and then another one, another In many respects, I think this book in which none of the poems are titled and they all, um, you know, they, they run on both sides of the page in text. I think of it really as one very long poem in some respects. Um, and I did that to some extent too with The Art of Dying. I just, I think because I am very familiar with poetry before 1800, that's really most of what I spend my time reading. And a lot of writers in those earlier periods wrote long poems, right? They wrote books that were poems and that had stories and so forth. They weren't kind of only lyric. And I'm thinking that, I think that has sunk very deeply into my head as a poet. You know, I think it's, it's pretty fascinating, this idea that um, writing in metered rhyming verse is out of fashion or considered old fashioned and your reference to poems before 1800, I, I think is fair enough. But I also think it's fascinating that this thing that is supposedly out of fashion is actually very popular in other ways. Mm -hmm. And I note that The Art of Dying, which is uh, your last book, was uh, a finalist for the most lucrative poetry prize in the world, the Griffin Poetry Prize in 2018. So <laughs> what do you yeah. think about no this? No one was more surprised than me, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was not surprised. Um, but yeah, what, yeah. what do you think about this? What seems to be a contradiction that of course is not a contradiction, the out of fashion being in fashion. Yeah, well, I, I know what you mean. And I think that it is, it's very easy to you know, form that impression. If you read a lot of contemporary poetry, a lot of it is very open form. It's very atmospheric. And then there's this whole other wing of it, right, which is oral performative. 
And those are probably the two main kinds of poetry one encounters. But I would say that stuff that is actually pretty formal and metrical is a strong third. It, it's not invisible and it seems actually in some ways to be kind of cropping up. You know, the sonnet has had a moment for the last sort of, I would say it's perhaps slightly over as a moment, but I mean, then again, it never is, right? Um, you know, but I mean, 15 years ago, sort of really major poets started producing books of sonnets and people have written, you know, award-winning collections of pantoums. Uh, you know, and, you know, many other forms have really got very, very long lives. So this book does, there are a lot of like snappy, smart ass couplets in this book. And the book in some ways is, you know, it's a satire, but it's also a collection of kind of wisdom poetry, which is another thing that old poetry really tends to do a mm. lot. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, uh, the urge to um, kind of allow the reader to see a clear form I've always had it, and it is what distinguishes my poetry writing from my prose writing, I think, perhaps most clearly in my own mind. I, you know, I think this is actually quite a political book in many ways, right? Because yeah. of its ability to have these, uh, as you call them, the snappy smart-ass sayings um, mm -hmm. that also take uh, sometimes some unpopular uh, political positions. Mm -hmm. uh, and so at this point, I, I don't wanna talk too much uh, about the politics before giving you a chance to read. I, I think we're gonna hear sort of a, a trio of poems from from this book and uh, give people a chance to, to actually hear what uh, what you're talking about. Okay, uh, so I uh, this is uh, on page six of the book if by some miracle you have it and I will just go straight in. My teenage daughter just asked me what's a self-fulfilling prophecy? Oh it's when an utterance makes things true I said as if I said to you you're going to die on Thursday and in anxiety you do. Ah, she said, and ticked a mental box and went away to herd her teenage flocks. Later, I thought I should have said much more. These things go right down to the core. If you think it's not my fault, I am betrayed, the world betrays me, you will find people do it every time. If in your heart you blame the women or the Jews, you will see indictment in the news. Such prophecies make you a liberal or a Tory. They forecast the end of every story. So great is their power that they are indistinguishable from laws. Expect the ball to fall, it falls. We have proleptic evidence. We knew already how it went. I knew you'd ask me this, I should have said. I am the mother, you the daughter. I know exactly how this ends. <laughs> so that's more or less a statement of, of confirmation bias. Um, <laughs> I will go on to a poem who quotes one of my very favorite authors and a major touchstone in my life, Ursula Le Guin. The Handara of Ursula Le Guin, invented in 1969, worked strenuously to divide answerable from unanswerable questions. Answerable ones they could even answer, but these, they said, could never matter. There are always more, nor will their answers cure the urge to ask again. Without discussing them at all, they preferred the unanswerable. Years of a careful backward practice let them feel a question and not ask it. Just so Wittgenstein's mystical feeling, I find it more and more appealing. Wittgenstein also slaved and slaved to work out what made sense to say, 
by proceeding negatively. Endless fiddly propositions. He made them up just to dismiss them. So much for logical positivism. Answers, answers, questions, questions. I, for one, am sick to death of them. I hope you're not too sick to death of them to oh, answer more yeah. of my questions. Because, <laughs> exactly. you know, um, I have a ton of questions about Ursula uh, K. Le Guin coming up. So just, yeah. you know, heads up. Right on. And then this very short one. Yes, I am a focus group of one. Everything I focus on is tremendously important. All the rest, I just ignore. That's what consciousness is for. There we go. <laughs> So the first this, three. this in a way, you know, this is what I mean when I'm talking about this being a political book, mm -hmm. particularly because I have noticed that being female and being funny is a very political position and daring to parody uh, the way we live now to suggest that um, our uh, opinions about which some people are extremely serious are subjects for satire and that we have our head in the sand and are constantly distracted in this contemporary age. So yeah, I'm, I'm interested in hearing you talk a little bit about the risks of being satirical or parodic and uh, female at the same time. Well, I think this is never a safe position, you know, to be in. And it is true that this book, I am sure by some readers is going to be instantly dismissed as bitchy. <laughs> and I don't mind that. You know, I mean, no satire is doing its job if it doesn't get some people's backs up. I have kind of, again, somewhere in there, there's a little line about, you know, authorship and, it, you know, it's best to treat writers as dead. We've done what we've done and we've said what we've said. Well, there it is. You know, I've just bloody well said it. And you may now have your, you know, speak your piece, whoever you are, reader, right? And I think, it is the correct use of our democracy that I get to do that and that anybody else gets to respond. I have no intention of getting into you know, social media firestorms about it. The way to respond to a book of poetry, as far as I'm concerned, is to write another book of poetry. That is, in many respects, what this is. It is in dialogue with a whole bunch of books of poetry that go back a considerable way. One of the chief ones, I think, actually, is Alexander Pope, uh, who was also a guy who wrote snappy, bitchy couplets. Indeed. You have this great uh, poem called uh, Philistinism Begins at Home. It begins, the, uh, the poem begins, Philistinism Begins at Home. And it always makes me laugh, but because it's in part an indictment of our education system, um, of our education system and of course, parenting styles that just hand children over to the education system and say, you educate them. I, I wonder if you've ever read that to a hostile audience. No, I haven't. Often I'm, you know, braver as a writer than a reader. This is, I think, often the case, right? Many writers are. They can actually write stuff down that they would live in terror of uttering, you know, in most situations. It's kind of the polar opposite of shooting your mouth off online. It's that kind of problem. So I haven't, um, you know, really read this to hostile audiences at this point, chiefly because, of course, we're not reading to audiences much at all in, uh, you know, the present circumstances. But, you know, I do expect that it would get some pushback. I'd like to invite you to do, uh, to give us a few more of your poems. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, and have us think about um, the position that, that you put yourself in as a poet of asking people to think 
uh, about their confirmation bias and um, maybe their head in the sand um, attitude. Okay. Uh, this is going uh, along a considerable way in the book, so it's up to page 85, and it is about two 12-year-old boys on the bus, talking quietly, without fuss, about Fortnite and other stuff, strikingly polite. One of them mentions to the other a book someone recommended about how to treat your friends, you know? Bros before hoes. My heart goes cold. The whole world is caught red-handed. These two boys, how could they know they've just described the status quo? They just think it's good advice. And then the, the final two poems uh, definitely participate in, broadly speaking, the wisdom tradition. This is on page 102. An apotheme, in case you've not looked it up recently, is a short, pithy saying, a bit of general advice. I've always liked them. My son likes them too. He calls them memes, pearls of dumb wisdom from communities all over the place. We have seen the enemy and it is us, is my all-time favorite from Walt Kelly's Pogo. Now wait just one minute, you say. I am peaceable. I do my recycling. I never pick fights. I have a decent horror of the alt-right. I have to ask, how does that apply to me? If you exist, you're somebody's enemy. I love how that one lands. <laughs> you know? um, yeah. yeah, no yes. kidding. And uh, we, hear, we hear the power too of the of the rhyme at the end, right? Yeah, that, that, um, that's what it's for. You know, that's yeah. why all pop music rhymes and you know rappers make such a brilliant impact because they have no fear of it, right? Yeah. So um, this is my my final one, and it is no mix are rarely composed by gnomes in their earthy homes as described by Paracelsus. Although it's fair to say that the earth is wise in its salt and sulfur and mercury and that all chemical formulae share a gnomic quality. Herodotus was not low carb. Hunting and gathering is improvident. He gives a thousand useful rules for farms and care of women, dogs and implements. Don't take a horse on ice without rough shoes. Trust no women, whatever you do, says Havamal. Beware of trusting your son too soon. There are childhood diseases, so the world is not overrun by babies, the Exeter book quietly intones. He is wretched who lives alone. Thank you. Oh, again, that, uh, that killer right at the end. You know, oh, there's all these, <laughs> these all these offensive sayings that come down through us <laughs> yes, <laughs> history. Yes. Couplets, and, couplets especially, but yeah. But worse true. than all of that is living alone, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah I want to turn the conversation now towards um, prize culture and, mm -hmm. uh, and private art making. And um, yeah, and what's the split there between uh, prize culture as a kind of um, public acknowledgement and sometimes as a form of public uh, adulation and, and the very private process of, of making art. And in part, I, I ask you this because of what I, I mentioned before that your last poetry book was nominated for uh, the Griffin Poetry Prize, which is uh, not only very uh, lucrative, but of course, very few people get nominated for it. Did that change uh, your view of yourself as a writer or how you work? I'm not sure that it did. I mean, I found it 
it, it was a great surprise when it happened. You know, it, you know, I wasn't, as it were, kind of writing for the award. I mean, I think there are people who are much more conscious of the awards landscape and have quite clear goals vis-a-vis -vis it. Well, I'm not. <laughs> um, uh, so that just happened out of the blue. The one thing I might say, I suppose, is that having got that kind of pretty massive and kind of affirmation, I at least felt morally and mentally solid enough to go ahead and write this book, which I think actually is probably going to be quite unpopular. I mean, I'm not seeing this book winning big awards, actually. I think it is not that kind of book. You know, it's too grouchy. And, you know, it is nonetheless the book that I needed to write at that time. I needed to push my technique certain ways, and I needed to allow myself to be fearless. Uh, I think that is the most important thing, uh, certainly for poets in particular, because it's a very exposed form. And if you yeah. aren't willing to just lay it out there, then you're not doing your job, or at least that's very much how it seems to me. And the poems that really last, you know, the ones that last for centuries <laughs> are the ones in which people have done that, I think. But the uh, awards thing, I, I mean, I, I am really, really happy that it happened to me. And I think that particular award is, is lovely because it makes poetry itself into sort of something that can very briefly participate in a kind of celebrity culture. I mean, I'm not usually, you know, I don't like watch the Oscars every year or, you know, whatever, or the Grammys or whatever, but it's so rare that a poet gets that kind of star treatment and that particular award sort of configures it in that way. And it, you know, there's a gala and so forth. And, you know, it was really enjoyable and it felt like a privilege to go through it. And I, you know, I have retained that, you know, that is constantly affirming. Well, you know what I think. I, I think grouchy women make the world go round, right? <laughs> well, you know, so. we do exist. Uh, there are a certain number of us. Uh, some of us have a fair amount of training. A large number. Yeah. <laughs> a very yeah. large number. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, this book is very much about, again, what people say to themselves in their own communities and the, the you know, the problems and shortcomings that arise from that. But it certainly doesn't mean that like the speaker poet isn't implicated in that. You know, the speaker poet is actually very exposed and is going to look like an idiot to many readers. And you know what? That's okay, right? That's the whole purpose of the thing. So uh, it's not... Um, just grouchiness endlessly directed outward. You know, it is the problem of, you know, the grouchiness that we all dispend among ourselves in our own communities, which include us, right? You know. Speaking of which, I, I'd, I'd like to, uh, to move to, to talking about Ursula K. Le Guin. Speaking of a profitably grouchy and, um, t uh, and not uh, taking any nonsense. minded yeah. <laughs> um, she praised uh, one of your spec uh, speculative fiction novels, The Stone Boatman, with these words, and it blows me away, so I'm going to quote from Le Guin. <laughs> the Stone Boatman has, has the making of one of these quiet classics. It is lucid yet complex. Its strangeness fascinates, captivates. To read it is to find yourself in a country a long, long way from home, taken on an unforeseeable journey. And when it's over, you wish you were still there. 
Um, that's the end of her quote. And, you know, to me, like to have Le, Le Guin say something like this about your writing would be like a little bit like meeting God. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to know, you know, your uh, interactions with her and, 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 and how you received this, this kind of great praise. It, well, it was, uh, it's actually um, a sort of rather uplifting story in some respects, I think. Because Le Guin has always been, as I say, a kind of touchstone for me. I have read all of her work, critical and creative, and it has, you know, been part of my mental landscape since I was a teenager. Um, and when I completed that first long novel, uh, The Stone Boatman, which I started working on probably about 2013 or 14, it took a, a huge amount of effort. <laughs> it was very slow. The whole, you know, the, the book came together slowly over really a five-year period. Um, I rode most of it on the Greyhound bus, commuting back and forth uh, from Toronto with two very young children. And by the end of it, I was also seriously depressed. So it was very difficult to be kind of sitting on this thing that I'd never imagined myself, you know, to be capable of writing, which is a long continuous piece of prose fiction, which I'd never done before. I tried various different ways of getting it published, none of which worked. And it was so disheartening that I finally concluded that in a way I had written this particular book in the way that I wrote it. It's a kind of philosophical romance in some ways, a kind of a retelling, um, you might say a slightly metaphored retelling of what the European Renaissance would look like if certain small key thoughts about the history of science were changed. <laughs> so. You know, I, I said to myself, well, Ursula Le Guin is the ideal reader for this book. She's the only consciousness on earth I am really, really concerned with ever reading it. And I sent it to her in desperation. <laughs> you know, I sent it to her post office box, the poor woman. And four or five months later, she wrote back to me and she said she had read it. This huge, heavy manuscript in like Sherlock's binding. She had taken it to the beach and read it with her family. And she said a, a whole bunch of really nice things about it in this email. Um, and then she said, and I've shown it to my friend, Timmy uh, Duchamp, who runs a small press called Aqueduct Press in the Midwest, and she will contact you about it. This was entirely her doing th this beginning. It was just, it was a gift. You know, I wasn't writing to her, you know, to get this to happen or, you know, for secret handshakes to editors or anything of that nature I actually did it because it was sort of almost my way of saying farewell to that book what, you know, what an act of generosity wow. I know exactly she has always been an incredibly forthright you know direct strong unyielding to criticism type of woman and yet look what she did there yeah. you know she was at, at the you know the top of her game she was a very senior person had an enormous amount of calls on her time, professional and personal, was still very active in publishing, although she was nearly 80 at that time, <laughs> you know, she, she did that, you know, and she actually um, blurbed my second novel, the, the Little Animals, it was the last book that she blurbed before her death. So, mm. you know, it was just absolutely amazing. And I've published a lot of fiction with Aqueduct since then. Percentage wise, I must say, much more unbelievable than winning the the Griffin nomination. I mean, that was stunning, but this was even more stunning. You know, and I was also in such an emotionally kind of terrible place at that time that it was all the more affecting. It was utterly transformative, you know? Talk about a shot in the arm. 
Have you ever written about this? I think there's an essay in this. Yeah, I suspect that there is. I have uh, written kind of longish, you know, letters and posts to the SF Canada listserv about this because when she died, there was a sort of outpouring among the professionals in this field about, you know, their reminiscences and so forth and so on. So I told this tale, um, which, you know, many people thought was touching and that they, you know, came up with, you know, analogous, you know, small, really, humane things and generous things that she had done for other, you know, members of the kind of writerly community, the SF community, broadly speaking. And then I wrote an elegy, um, kind of, I, which I'm pretty sure was spawned by, by my recollection, uh, you know, writing it out in prose for that letter, which again, I kind of circulated through, through that group. And they said, you know, this is really great, submit it to on spec, the Canadian kind of spec fic magazine. Uh, so I did, and then it won an Aurora. <laughs> So, wow, you know, <laughs> probably the only Aurora, again, that I, you know, will, will ever win. But also, in a sense, right, a, a gift from Ursula. And I know that you have another uh, speculative fiction book coming out very soon, within a couple months, right? Uh, I have one that came out with Tor.com uh, in the fall um, called The Fourth Island. And it's a kind of historical um, fantasy uh, set on an imaginary fourth Aran Island, right off the coast of Ireland. And then I have another one called All the Horses of Iceland, likewise coming out with tour.com in early 2022. She really did kind of open up this, this door and yep. these floodgates, right? Yes. Because you are a, a very prolific uh, spec fic writer now, right? Uh, yeah, quite. Uh, yes. And I'm sure I wouldn't have been, you know, but for that amazing affirmation you know that I got uh, after such a troubled period you know at the beginning um so yeah so that I guess the the stone boatman came out in whatever it was in 2014 uh you know and it was um it was you know shortlisted for a couple of awards and that was also good and it meant that I felt hey you know I can actually write prose now and I went straight on you know I've written two collections of short fiction. I've written four novellas and one novelette. And yeah, so it, it's been coming out pretty continuously ever since then. Now yeah. we're coming to the end of uh, our time. So I just want to thank you for joining us here in Watershed Writers. And uh, we hope to see you again. Yes, thank you so much. It's been really fun. And I think this is indeed the whole idea of Watershed uh, Writers is an excellent one. So good luck with the rest of the series as well. Thanks, Sarah. Watershed Writers is produced by Francis Roberts Riley with technical production by Brendan Highmore. Our first season is hosted by CKWR 98.5 in Waterloo Region with support from Region of Waterloo Arts Fund and in partnership with Idea Exchange and the Waterloo Public Library. Our theme music is Water by Alicia Brilla from her album Rooted. What do we connect?